So I want to stay on the topic of mindfulness of the body today. You know, I have not spoken a lot on this subject for some strange reason, except for the element of breath meditation, which is part of body meditation. And uh, this is why I'm finding myself surprised at how much there is to say really about the body. And I shall attempt to uh, get through it today. So the body is mindfulness of the body, and uh, it also includes mindfulness of the postures, which I discussed yesterday. And so mindfulness and clear comprehension. So one can cultivate this as a form of uh, sanity. The main problem why we're so burdened and frazzled is that we don't have a place for our mind to go, and we don't know, we've never been told where our mind can find a safe uh, refuge. So the Buddha is uh, giving you something. He's saying the body is always in the present. You, you can, the body's not in the past or the future. It's always here in the present. So you can use it as an anchor for your helium balloon of a mind. Your mind inclines to wander, to uh, like uh, if you've seen those children at the, at the circus or at the exhibition that have been given a helium balloon and they're carrying it around. Now the wise parent will always tie it to their wrist because they know it's just a matter of time before the child is distracted, opens their hand and the helium balloon goes off. So you see these weeping and wailing um, four-year-olds staring at the sky as the healing balloon has gone. This is uh, uh, unfortunately a characteristic of adults as well, um, all the way from, uh, from four onwards. Your mind will drift away because you forget to hold on to the string, and the string is the body, so you can center it in the body. And this is something that one should practice just to see how beautiful an experience this is. Now, you don't have to do any kind of unnatural movements. You just have to pay attention. You'll find all kinds of schools of Buddhism that teach specific ways of walking or uh, general movement as well. Uh, this occurs in, in some of the Zen schools. Some of the Vipassana schools are very big on uh, slow motion heightened mindfulness through slow motion. There, is, there, there isn't any instruction by the Buddha about any particular practice such as slow motion walking or any of these things, but uh, as I mentioned before, there is very strong uh, urging of monks and nuns that when they go in public that they should not walk in an eccentric fashion. <laughs> such as hopping like a frog. This is really, the instructions are in the Vinaya, not to go hopping like a frog. <laughs> well, you know, the spiritual life draws all kinds of characters to it, and India was full of all kinds of eccentric practices, spiritual practices, and so people had all kinds of wild ideas about what uh, should be done. But the Buddha, is, that's why he's giving 
this instruction on how to behave properly, you are actually in a relationship with the society around you, and you should behave in a, in a serene and dignified manner. Uh, now, that requires mindfulness to, to walk in a, in a certain way and keep your attention. It doesn't require that you walk uh, exceptionally slow or fast, etc., but uh, just in a normal fashion. So this mindfulness of the body in motion is very handy. Of course, you can be mindful of the body while sitting, just being present in your body. But uh, certainly walking meditation is is a place very handy for that. There's a beautiful expression that I read many, many years ago in the Tao Te Ching. I recommend uh, that as well. 5,000 Chinese characters, beautiful, contemporary with the time of the Buddha, and some very interesting advice, very much in line with, uh, with the, the Buddha Dhamma. One of the expressions was attentive, like men crossing an icy stream in winter. And having crossed many icy streams in winter, myself, being Canadian, that was such a a beautiful expression in a single phrase. So many of you who are listening may may perhaps have not crossed an icy stream in winter, but uh, boulders which you would step on, logs and so forth, are coated with ice. And if you don't watch what you're doing, guess what happens? You fall into the icy water. If it's big enough, you're done. (laughs) If it's small, it's merely shockingly uncomfortable. And so they set up this, you have a great concern. You cannot walk without enormous amount of uh, uh, applied attention to cross an icy stream. Uh, For many of you, it'll just be a matter of crossing an icy sidewalk or a slippery um, area. And so this is a kind of a a hint about attention and the, the quality of attention that you can bring to the body in motion. And this is incredibly refreshing. And some, in some ways, this is why we play games and do sports is to catch our own attention. So if you play tennis, you are fully attentive, trying to hit the ball back. And uh, you do this because you're present for a while. Uh, More extreme versions of this is climbing uh, cliffs. And in order to up the the attention demand, uh, some people choose to climb these sheer rock walls without any uh, safety harnesses or ropes. Now that's going to a bit of an extreme. I, 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 I advise you not to do that. <laughs> Why do people do things like that? It's in order to catch their own attention, to be fully present and alive now. And the, the joy that arises with this is so great that some people are quite happy to risk their very life to re-experiencing it.
This happens in wars as well. Wars are terrible things. Uh, people come back from wars traumatized, but also some people come back having experienced full presence of mind where there is no future and no past because you're in a very dangerous situation. So you, when you're fully present, you feel fully alive. And some people have a great deal of trouble returning to a non-life-threatening situation because it felt so great to be 100% alive. Now, the whole thing is that it should occur to people that you don't have to hang off the side of a cliff or go to war or even cross an icy stream in winter. You can experience your life before it's over by being fully present and using the body as your anchor. And so when you go out to the store, walk across the Walmart parking lot, you know, on a rainy day, it doesn't have to be a bad experience. It doesn't have to be a existentially disappointing experience. It can be full of life uh, if you can bring your mind to the body and be fully present and aware. Ultimately, though, why are we doing this? So this is the first talk. The theme is, why are we trying to increase our a capacity to sustain attention, to be present when we wish to be present. By the way, it doesn't mean that you are never, that you never think of the future and you never remember the past. I've heard spiritual teachers talk like that, where no future, no past, and all this. Uh, it it, it uh, is not the case. Uh, the future... Memories of the past and uh, planning for the future, awareness of the future, are perfectly useful. And the thing is, though, you should have a choice about whether you're plunged into the past or future or your present. So the, the Buddha talks about having control of his mind. So when I wish to, I think of the future. When I wish to, I, think, I remember the past. When I wish to, I, I remain in the present. Whatever thought I wish to have, that thought I have. Whatever thought I do not wish to have, that thought I do not have. So this is a training. I would say that the ordinary understanding of the mind in the West is that it's, it's, it's simply uh, not possible to choose your thoughts. But the, so the Buddha is saying, yes, it is possible. And if it takes the rest of your life, it would be a good exercise for you to do. Because if you live without, uh, with no command over your mind, that you merely follow your whatever uh, hodgepodge of, of tendencies, habits, and impulses that you have, and you think that that's freedom, you're deeply mistaken. It's not freedom at all. It's the opposite. You're a slave to your impulses and your habits, etc. And you can re restructure those. And that's freedom. So a fine discipline which uh, results in, a, in great skill is freedom. And lack of that is the opposite. You're subject to the uh, outbursts of your emotions, which you have no idea where they come from. So this is... Uh, this is a common misunderstanding. 
So Buddhism is, uh, it's, it, do, it, it is a lot of work. Uh, it's exclusively work. There is no way out of this. And so some people, because uh, you start this at your least disciplined point in your life, and it's, it's a lot of work. Your mind is at its maximum uh, lack of skill and control. And so it seems to be an enormous amount of work. As you go along and practice more and more, the uh, habit structures become weaker, or the negative habit, habit structures become weaker, and the positive structures which you are attempting to make habit start to strengthen. And so sometimes you get whole periods of effortless ease and well-being, where you're, no negative thoughts are intruding. So this is, the, this is why we're doing these exercises. Why are we training our attention? Why are we asking our mind to stay present? And why are we using the body as an anchor? It is for this purpose. Uh, it's for a larger purpose. It's not merely for attention. It's not merely about attention or the capacity for attention. It's a matter of why do I pay attention? What are the benefits to a human for paying attention? How do I ultimately find control of my mind? And control of my mind is just another way of saying how do I come to the end of suffering? And coming to the end of suffering is another way of how am I ever going to be well happy and peaceful. So this is why we're doing these exercises. I'd like to move on a little bit. So this is something you can practice at any time. You just go out in your backyard and walk back and forth. Uh, if you don't have space, you can... And of course, I've been at many retreats where one reason why you walk in slow motion is that you're, there's 40 of you trapped in a small building, and now it's time for walking meditation because you can't sit all the time. And if you all walk fast, it'll just be chaos, won't it? So everybody has to walk tiny little steps in slow motion. That's why we do it. Um, not because it has great intrinsic value. Although it, it, it is interesting because when you walk very, very slowly, you have to pay attention in a way that is, uh, helps you. So to do things in slow motion is a trick uh, for helping you to pay attention. It's not necessary. Uh, the mind, by the way, is so much faster than the body uh, that uh, it's not that you can't pay attention in ordinary, uh, at ordinary speeds. You can see people, uh, these athletes in gymnastics or diving off 10-meter towers, spinning three times in the air backwards and then entering the water perfectly. Obviously, uh, the mind is one heck of a lot faster than the body. And so it can pay full attention at different speeds. Uh, Ajahn Chah, the famous Ajahn Chah, the uh, Thai forest master, uh, who is sort of the root uh, Ajahn guru of uh, all of the uh, branch monasteries, including this one. One of the practices uh, you'll find in some monasteries is eating slowly and mindfully chewing every 
bite, etc. And however, in the forest monasteries that I was in, um, it was almost the opposite. It was very fast. You had to eat rather fast. And there was only one meal a day. You had to dispose of it. And the reason why was to kind of avoid the indulgence in the one sensual, sensory hit of the day, the only possible way you can have a sensory experience in a monastery as a monk is the one meal. However, it was hurried along, more or less just to get it into you for nutrition. And that's there are other versions of that, that is eating in slow motion so you're paying attention to every the rising and passing away of every sensation. So these are different uh, strategies. Ajahn Chah himself sometimes would, would tell the monks to slow down, to eat more slowly, but he ate fast himself. And so one of the uh, novices one day um, asked him, he said, Ajahn, you, you tell us to eat slowly, but you, you eat fast. And he said, uh, it's like driving a car, you know. Some people drive slowly but have a lot of accidents, and some people drive fast, they have no accidents. So it depends on your mind, isn't it? The mind is always a hundred or a thousand times faster than the body. And so it's the mind, it's not the body. The body is just an object for use. Uh, There's much to say about this, but I want to move on to other aspects which are mentioned in this Maha Satipatthana Sutta, the great discourse on mindfulness, focuses of mindfulness, and so they also they talk in there about the the problematic nature of the body, your relationship to the body, uh, vanity, as self consciousness, revulsion, and attraction are the features of the human life. Uh, this is this biological um, desire for the body, uh, uh, external body, and, uh, and also repulsion to the body. So lots of judgments around beauty and what is not beautiful. And <clears throat> this is uh, obsessive and uh, causes a lot of distress for people. And so the Buddha says, let's just... Uh, and this, is, this primarily is advice for monastics, uh, because monastics have to overcome their all these uh, uh, magnetic uh, effects of other people's body and their own body. So both you're both attracted and repulsed by the body, and as long as you are, you're in a you're you're like a piece of metal that's magnetized or is subject to magnetism. Some metals have no. Uh, magnetic uh, uh, aspect, and so they're not affected by it. They're neither negative or positive. Buddha is asking the monks to get to the place where they're no no longer affected by this, not pulled one way or the other. So, uh, I mean, as you grow up as a child, uh, you you at a certain age, when you're two years old, uh, there's nothing you love more than a, a really nice red plastic ball that uh, is, is very cheap. It's, a, it's 60 cents made in China. 
rolls along the floor, and you're just delighted by it. But as you get to a certain age, a few years on, the red plastic ball means nothing to you. And certainly as an adult, the red plastic ball doesn't mean anything. Maybe you transfer it to a red plastic Ferrari or something like that. But uh, this, is, this is, leaves you in the state of, uh, amongst these material things, uh, that you're, you're preoccupied by them. So the, the Buddha is giving you some exercises to overcome this. And this is what's given at your ordination. And it's very curious when, you, when you're doing your ordination, you're asked to repeat this in front of your ordaining teacher. Head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin. And then you're asked to do it backwards and then forwards. So backwards and forwards, you're supposed to be able to say head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, forward and backwards. Five aspects of the human body. Why? Why, why, does a, why is that your, your meditation object which is given at your ordination? Why? Because that may be one of the most difficult aspects of ordination is to relinquish one's desire and attraction for the human body. So the Buddha gives this very simple exercise. Head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin. Those are the five external aspects of the body. And when you just say them like that, it's really interesting. Head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin. And as you contemplate this, you take them apart, you put them in piles, you, you see what it, uh, as a monk shaves his head, by the way, at ordination. And you get to hold your, your own hair, your head, your head hair is gone. You get to see what it is. It's very... It's not much to write home about, actually. <laughs> it's just hair. Just little strands of threads. Uh, animals have hair. Humans have hair. It's, it's, it's really not much. Your nails. Uh, of course, you're cutting your nails all the time. Every, every few weeks, you cut your nails. And uh, you don't keep them, do you? They're not all that important to you. Not attractive, you, you throw them into the garbage, right? Same with the hair, it just falls to the floor at the barber shop, and they sweep it up, put it in the garbage. Head hair, body hair, oh, certainly body hair. Uh, body hair like mustaches and beards and uh, chest hair and leg hair and all of this kind of stuff. And of course, uh, shaving this off goes into the garbage. Teeth, uh, mostly just bones in your head, and skin. Skin is uh, a big deal in the in the the consignment of beauty products and so forth. Uh, but it's really only a spandex uh, outfit that you wear. And uh, notice when you take off your stockings or your socks or your leggings or your spandex one-piece suit and it just kind of dissolves, you know, it's just a pile of collapsed fabric really. That's your skin. 
That's all it is, spandex. <laughs> Leaking spandex. It's permeable. What passes through it is fluids, uh, etc. <laughs> the etc. is uh, something to uh, that you're constantly washing it. Um, so this is why you're given this. It's like it's not really to develop uh, aversion or repulsion to the body. It's really to just get an objective sense of what it is. These are the attractive parts of the human body head, hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin. This is what is considered attractive. And when you just isolate them and just look at them, they're not, they're not terribly repulsive, but uh, they're, uh, in isolation they're not uh, attractive. So a, a, a hair in your soup um, from the waitress is not attractive. <laughs> um, uh, fingernails, toenails, and so forth, are not, when they're separated from the body, they're not attractive. So this is what uh, you're, you're trying to get neutrality around the, the, the body because the body, uh, to have too much uh, concern and uh, investment in the body is a, it's just a bad chess move. It, it will come back to you at some point. If your body doesn't look like you want it to, you will suffer a lot. If other people's bodies don't look like you want them to, you will suffer a lot. If other people's bodies look like you want them to, and you actually want those bodies, you will suffer a lot. So this is the um, exercise. The other thing to remind yourself of, the strange and curious aspect of this body thing, is that those five things, which are the externals, uh, which are the attractive parts, remember, you never fall in love with somebody else's liver, or kidneys, or heart. Yeah, their emotional heart, yes, but not the beating, pulsing chunk of flesh that's inside them. You don't fall in love with their, their sinews or their blood. In fact, uh, you, uh, or their saliva, etc. You, you are actually, when those are isolated, you're somewhat repulsed by them. You fall in love with the five externals. You find those attractive. And... Interestingly enough, those are the only ones that are dead. The head hair is dead. The body hair is dead. The nails are dead. That's why you cut them off, you throw them away. There's no pain involved. It's just dead. It's dead flesh. And, of course, the skin, the teeth are dead. The, the, there's only a little live pulp to them. You'll know about that when you go to the dentist sometime. Uh, but the outside is, is just uh, dead. And... Then the skin, of course, the, super, the surface of the skin is dead, and it flakes off continuously. And that's the part that you like. So you, you, you fall in love with the dead parts of people, not the live parts. The live parts you're afraid of. That's the inside, the, the gushy parts, the squeezy parts, the pumping parts. They're alive. The outside, not alive. <clears throat> it is bizarre. It is bizarre. But this is the undoing of ordinary perceptions about this. And so we have peculiar perceptions about these things. Uh, humans are very strange. They, we recognize it as a mental illness, this uh, process of... Uh, you'll find people who are hoarders. They, they collect all kinds of trashy things and fill their whole house up with it. And we think, 
oh, what's wrong with them, <laughs> you know? But then where is the line between mental illness and uh, attraction to pieces of junk that you, most people would throw away, and, and which one do you want to keep and which one do you want to dispose of, and where is the line for that? Uh, humans can fall in love with almost anything, and they can also get strange uh, compulsions and aversions to almost anything. So people can be afraid of forks or um, all, uh, shoes, or they can also be afraid of trees or all kinds of things. So this is perception and strange fears. So this is uh, not wise to live with a mind that is that irrational, wildly out of control. So these are exercises in rationality, in having some sense of the problematic nature of being so impulsively influenced by sights, because uh, the human body is a sight. And uh, so this is something that one works with, with the body. Now, this advice primarily, notice, is, is given to monastics. And monastics are not taken off. We're not drafted into this like the army. We are, this is a voluntary thing. You decide that it's a, you want to do this. You want to renounce these things. Why would you do that? So lots of people have that question. Why would you want to do something like that? That doesn't sound like fun. I like bodies. I want bodies, I, etc. <clears throat> so why would you do this if it's going to ruin your, your attraction and your, the thrills of the body? So, Because it's the long game. It's the chess game. You're seeing a few moves ahead because bodies don't last bodies change, and it becomes, uh, if, you, if your happiness is around these things, these superficial things, then your, your happiness is very dependent, very shaky, very uncertain, and quite out of your control. And this is the nature also. People are disappointed with their bodies, and they're also proud of their bodies. And part of this is this just simply... Uh, a strange identity with the body, which is just a product of nature. It's a, a biological product which grows. You have no idea how it works, how it grew, and yet you identify with it. You, you think, this is me. But the Buddha is pointing out uh, that it is not you because you don't have an uh, agency over it. You, you didn't make it. You don't control it. Uh, it gets sick by itself. You can't tell it not to. It, it acts independently. It grows in a certain way. Your hair grows by itself. All of these things, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, all of this grow by itself. And you're in a strange, improper, irrational relationship with it if you think that it's yours and that you're responsible for it, that you made it somehow. So these are ways of clearing up delusion. So those are delusions, the relationship to these. And you can see how it really can become a very extreme uh, a psychological problem, the relationship to the body. People have incredible uh, delusions about their bodies and uh, suffer greatly about this. So the Buddha is saying it's not just about 
extreme situation, mental illness kind of thing, but even ordinary people's relationship to their body, the, the minor vanities and minor uh, inferiority senses and so forth are all delusion, delusory. And delusion is the root cause of suffering. So we want to uh, pay attention to these, analyze these things. And so the, in this sutta, the mindfulness sutta, you'll see dividing the body into 32 parts, uh, starting with the first five that I mentioned, head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin, and then going inside to the stuff that's quite easy to have both aversion to and uh, rarely attraction to, but sometimes horror of and fear of, such as blood. So some people are, are horrified by blood. <clears throat> I, I have a story about a man I met many years ago, over 30 years back, when I was first a monk. And he was a doctor who showed up at a, at a monastery I was at. And he told me a story about being a doctor, because, you know, if you're in the medical field, you have to deal with bodies, and uh, you might have to open bodies. And uh, what people, ordinary people, find scary or cause for fear, the doctor has to not. They have to be neutral about it. They have to look for, they have to just see it as it is. But there's little tricks that the human mind plays. So the doctor can be quite objective about uh, his patient's body. But if it's his children's body or his wife's body or his body, then it's a different matter. There are things that are concealed from us. So he told me this story. He said I was, he was working in the charity ward of the Los Angeles General Hospital. <clears throat> and this would be in the... Uh, in the 80s, the early 80s. And uh, he said, I was, uh, you know, an emergency physician and working in the hospital there and treating all kinds of patients. And uh, it was, I, you know, somebody coming in from a motorcycle accident and I'd have to stuff their innards back in and open them up and all this kind of stuff. And I just do it, wash my hands, go off and have a hamburger, come back and next case. I'm a doctor after all, so it's all just stuff, you know. But it was the time of the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. So all these young men were showing up with these strange symptoms, and so they, they deduced that it was about an AIDS, AIDS epidemic, <clears throat> and he's treating them, and he suddenly thinks, you know, maybe I, I should get my blood tested because I might have picked it up, you know, from them. And so he goes to the nursing station and asks, says the, to the nurse, to call, it, call it, a friend of his who's a doctor, call Dr. So-and-so, I want my, I want my blood uh, analyzed for this. Anyway, the, doc, the other doctor, his friend, is, uh, is too busy to, to do this. He doesn't show up. So he says, just give me the, give me the needle, give me the vacutainer, I'll take my own blood. So he puts on the tourniquet and pokes, pokes it in there. And when he, he pulls it out and there's a little bit of blood just spurts out and he faints. <laughs> and he hits his head on the floor very hard, knocks himself 
(laughs) out. He wakes up in a hospital bed and wonders, what what happened? The nurse says, well, doctor, you saw your own blood and you fainted. (laughs) He says, I had no idea. I, I had my hand up to here in somebody's intestines 20 minutes before with no effect whatsoever. I saw uh, three drops of my own blood and I fainted. That's how the cognitive dissonance is between self and other, etc. There's all kinds of little aspects of truth on how you relate to others and about yourself, and these are hidden and trapped. And he says, that was the beginning of really my search, in my beginning of my meditation, I thought, I, who knows what I don't know about myself? I would like to find out. I would like to get in touch with, you know, what is it? <clears throat> so he began to meditate. It changed his, his whole life. He was a very dedicated meditator and had been meditating for, for some years at that time. So these, uh, this exploration of the nature of your body uh, in accord with these ideas about looking at it as parts and taking it apart, putting it together, taking it apart, putting it together, this is a very good exercise. This, this takes a while to go in. It's, at first it's just an intellectual exercise, but eventually it can help you in many ways become uh, more neutral and at ease with your body. And this doesn't <clears throat> necessarily... Uh, make life dull or anything like this. This is for liberation. And this is hard for people to understand because it's not the general tone out there. Most people are highly invested in in bodies. And, uh, and of course, this is mostly people making money, selling you products for your body, selling you stories about bodies, selling you excitement and so forth. This is basically the marketing industry and, and so forth. And if you want to stay a faithful customer of that, then by all means, don't do mindfulness of the body. <laughs> but if you want to change your perceptions about the body and what it is, then uh, these are the exercises for it. And it leads, it's radical it leads to a different view of reality. And in fact, it can make things, uh, make you a little strange compared to the ordinary person. <clears throat> when you stop investing so much, you become uh, marginalized to some degree, and, uh, but that's the price of uh, freedom. And ultimately, uh, well-being and happiness is that some things need to be uh, let go of and that the vast majority of humans uh, do not do these exercises. They don't get out of the trap of the body. And so you will be to somewhat marginalized because of this, but that's the, the price of freedom and well-being and happiness ultimately. So we will find out if you're willing to uh, pay the price, because this is the this is the higher path for the practice. There are other types of dhamma teachings which the Buddha gives, which are 
very well within the conventional range of human happiness. <clears throat> he doesn't neglect uh, people. He doesn't insist that everybody uh, becomes detached from the body. He realizes that it's just not going to happen for the majority of humans. But uh, <clears throat> if you're, this is why you're taking a course like this. Is you're perhaps interested to go on and uh, readjust your whole uh, sense of perception. It's a great adventure. And uh, uh, it, it has been undertaken by many people before, many generations before you. And so uh, if you are up for it, up for the adventure, then you will spend much time uh, reflecting and meditating on the nature of the body and using it. I will continue to talk more about the body because we're, we're still hardly touching the, the whole issue of the nature of the body. So I will talk more in the next talk about uh, mindfulness of the body. <clears throat>